You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else, and Donald Trump is a Dangerous Liar. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else is a program promoting secular humanism and scientific skepticism produced by the Winnipeg Skeptics. You can email your questions, comments, or criticisms to us at lueepodcast at winnipegskeptics.com. Show notes, references, and relevant links can be found at lueepodcast.wordpress.com or at winnipegskeptics.com slash blog. My name is Jem Newman, and with me today I have Ashlyn Noble. Hello. Lauren Bailey. Hello. Laura Creek Newman. Hi there. And returning panelist, Brendan Curran-Johnson. Hello. I wanted to talk about something fun today. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but instead, I guess we're stuck talking about something important, which is, I guess, the story of this show. Um, <laughs> given that this is our first episode uh, with the new American presidential administration, uh, I figured that it was our duty to talk about the president of the United States of America. So today on the show, we're talking about... We're talking about Trump. Among his many faults, Trump is a credulous conspiracy monger. He has demonstrated again and again that he is willing to endorse ideas that are demonstrably false, but personally convenient, and that he's willing to disseminate misinformation without bothering with even a cursory fact check. While these are flaws that afflict us all from time to time, it is truly worrying to see them writ large on such a powerful political figure. The scientific case for opposing Donald Trump is ironclad, but I'd argue that the moral case for opposing Donald Trump is even stronger. No wall! No ban! No wall! No one is illegal! Today we're going to talk about several of the scientifically and ethically dubious views that Trump has publicly endorsed, past and present. This will include frank discussions of racism, xenophobia, misogyny... Uh, honestly, this is probably what everyone expects from a discussion of Trump at this point, but it doesn't hurt to throw a content warning out front anyway. Several of the things that we'll touch on in this episode deal specifically with race, either explicitly or tangentially. Race is a frequent talking point for Trump supporters. So if you want a primer on the unscientific racist beliefs espoused by members of the fascist alt-right movement, I talked about those in detail back on episode 110 when we talked about scientific racism. So feel free to pause this and go back and give it a listen. Some people may question for all of the various lies that we're going to be talking about today, whether Donald Trump actually believes them or whether he is just saying them but doesn't believe them. I don't, and I assume this panel would agree with me, think that that is particularly important. As long as he is using these arguments to put things forward, it's irrelevant whether he believes them himself, because he is advocating for them. Yeah. yeah. And speaking as the leader of the free world, that brings a lot of power and credibility, whether you believe it or not, unfortunately. My God, I hate that term. Are we really, I know. as Canadians, calling the President <laughs> of the United States the leader of the free world? I don't believe it! <laughs> I think that phrase has one use, and it's in the context of the joke that on January 20th, there was a peaceful transfer of power from the old leader of the free world, Obama, to the new leader of the free world, Merkel. (laughs) (laughs) So this segment ties in really well with my segment last 
month on things that are more likely to kill you than things you're afraid of. Did you know that you are more likely to die from brain-eating parasites, alcoholism, medical errors, risky sexual behavior, or just about anything other than Muslims shooting you? Getting murdered by terrorists is pretty unlikely. Getting killed by a terrorist who happens to be Muslim is even less likely. Like, really, really, really unlikely. And yet, Trump seems to be super obsessed with the threat that Muslims specifically pose on U.S. soil. So I found an article from, it's from 2013, unfortunately, but it has some really interesting stats and I think that they have phrased them really well. So I'm going to quote a large portion of this. They're talking about how they came to their conclusion and how they uh, use their data. Um, so they used the START Global Terrorism Database, which spans from 1970 through uh, 2012 and is updated from year to year. And as of this writing includes 104,000 terrorist incidents. So we counted up the number of terrorist attacks carried out by Muslims. We excluded attacks by groups which are obviously not Muslims, such as the Ku Klux Klan, Medellin Drug Cartel, which I may have mispronounced, the Irish Republican Army, Anti-Castro Group, Mormon Extremists, the Vietnamese Organization to Exterminate Communists and Restore the Nation, uh, the Jewish Defense League, yada yada yada. Anything that was obviously not Muslims, they did not include in their stats about Muslims. We did count attacks by Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, Black American Muslims, or anyone who even remotely sounded Muslim. For example, anyone from Palestine, Lebanon, or any other Arab or Muslim country, or any name including anything sounding remotely Arabic or Indonesian, uh, like Al-Anything or Jamaat-Anything. So they are attempting to include the largest sample right. of right. Muslims. If we weren't sure what the person's affiliation was, we looked up the name of the group to determine whether it could in any way be connected to Muslims. Based on our review of approximately 2,400 terrorist attacks on U.S. soil contained within the START database, we determined that approximately 60 were carried out by Muslims. In other words, about 2.5% of all terrorist attacks on U.S. soil between 1970 and 2012 were carried out by Muslims. That is a very small proportion of all attacks. Uh, interestingly, they also determined that 118 of the terror attacks, 4.9%, were carried out by Jewish groups. And I've literally never heard in the context of U.S. stuff, like, we have to crack down on those Jewish terrorists... And you never will. <laughs> I've, I've heard two different sentences that contain all but one of those words. <laughs> yep. But yeah, that's a way larger number than I would have guessed. I yeah. would assume yeah. just like almost all of them would have been Christian white nationalists or atheist white nationalists or... And actually, like a, a quite a large percentage of them are from extreme left-wing groups. And most of those are like animal rights activists. I was going to say, is it like... Elf. Not PETA, but PETA. Yeah. <laughs> uh, elf and... Yeah, Elf's a big one. And Elf. So, yeah, extreme left-wing groups account for 24%. Ten times as likely to have committed a terrorist attack in the uh, U.S. Like, wow. Yeah. Let's not give them ideas about the far left who are going <laughs> <laughs> All I'm saying... I was just about to come to the defense of my, my brothers and sisters. <laughs> Uh, this is also uh, just counting terrorist attacks, uh, not necessarily talking about how many people were killed or injured yeah. or what exactly the targets were. That's you know. right, yeah. They might be firebombing uh, yep. labs and uh, things what, like what that. What year did you say they were starting with? 1970? 1970-something. Okay, so it's recent. I was wondering if this went back far enough that we'd be like, oh, and two presidential assassinations by... No. <laughs> no, but there was the um, end of the Vietnam War. Yep. Yep. 
Uh, they also do mention that if we look at worldwide attacks instead of just attacks on U.S. soil, uh, Sunni Muslims are the main perpetrators of terrorism. However, Muslims are also the main victims of terror attacks worldwide. Yes. Uh, and they also mentioned that the U.S. backs the most radical types of Sunnis over more moderate Muslims and Arab secularists. Thank you, Ronald Reagan. Uh, so this idea that Trump has that we need to ban Muslims from coming to our country, except Muslims from countries where he is doing business, uh, is somehow going to make us safer from terrorist attacks, is obviously completely unfounded and ridiculous. And I... This is literally one article that I found. There are hundreds of others, but I think that this one makes the point very succinctly and well. <laughs> it's worth noting that uh, if you're talking about the specific ban list that uh, went into effect a few weeks ago, zero American civilians have been killed in a terrorist attack perpetrated by immigrants from any of those nations. Since 1975, I think. Yeah. It those are all the stats I've had, so I don't know if somebody was killed before then, but all of the ones that I've read have said since then. But it's been a long-ass time anyway. And yeah. it's mostly refugees of from terror attacks yeah. right. that he has banned. Oh, so I want to quickly interject on the whole, except for uh, countries that he does business with. Uh, I'm going to be talking more about that specific thing in my last segment, because apparently I have lots of segments today. But <laughs> it's worth noting that... It is almost certainly not true that the reason those countries weren't picked were because he does business with them. There are causal reasons why countries that tend to have more refugees that are coming here also are countries that Trump isn't currently doing business with, yep. because those would be countries that the U.S. was bombing recently, for instance, mm -hmm. or is currently bombing. And also have less stable economies. So yeah. why would a business, like business people from other places wouldn't be investing there at that time? Yeah, this is a... Um, Multidimensional problem. Right, and we don't want well to confuse said. correlation with causation here. Uh, the list also was based on a list of countries with more stringent visa requirements uh, during the Obama administration. Yeah. I do find it interesting, like, they go on and on about September 11 and, and everything else, and as far as I can tell, none of the uh, hijackers were from countries that are on that list. None of them were. It's <laughs> The geopolitics of the U.S.'s great friendship with Saudi Arabia is very, mm -hmm. very interesting. Yeah. But mm -hmm. it's just like the, the words that they're, they're saying... Are, they're are... our ally, too, apparently, right? <laughs> so. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's true. I, I Not, think it's very important yeah. during this whole thing that when we talk about how the U.S. is bad under Trump right now, it was also bad before Trump, and also Canada is also really bad in many ways. Yep. Yes. I'm also not saying we shouldn't throw stones. I'm just saying we should also be aware that there are problems here, right? Yeah. The words that they're saying and the things that they're doing do not match up, and that is the thing that makes me the angriest of anything that people do ever. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> Laura. Tell us about jobs. Okay, jobs. Uh... <laughs> End of segment. Jobs. I did a lot of research on that, guys. Jo True fact, jobs exist. And I'm out. <laughs> Something that we often hear a lot about, especially when there's scare politics like we have going on right now, is the notion that immigrants are bad for a lot of reasons, but one of the big reasons is that they steal jobs from native-born citizens, and that's why we're all out of work and we don't have any money. So I thought it would be a good idea to take a look at this topic. 
And this is something that Trump used a lot in his primaries and during the run-up to the election. Immigrants steal jobs. Immigrants steal jobs. It's their fault. That's why we need a wall between the U.S. and Mexico, etc., etc. Many of these talking points are presented as very simplistic issues that have one very simple correct answer. But as we can all surmise, the issue of employment and uh, immigration and who is employed when and where is a much more complicated and nuanced issue. Obviously, not all uh, not all workers fall into the same categories in the U.S. They're different ages, they're different genders, they're different racial backgrounds, different socioeconomic levels, different education levels. Some of them are born in the U.S., some of them are not. To deny that this would have any effect on whether or not someone is employed would be just denying the facts. So we need to make sure that we are looking at this issue as a much broader, complicated issue. As a little bit of a background, immigrants make up approximately 13.3% of the U.S. population, which is about 40 million people. And it's important that we, for this topic specifically, that we talk about immigrants in two different categories, because an issue that comes up a lot in the U.S. is whether uh, an immigrant is a documented or a legal immigrant or an illegal immigrant. They are not documented. So the U.S. has very strict immigration laws compared to other similar countries. So there's a couple of ways to immigrate to the U.S. One is via family sponsorship. So that means that you have family already living there um, or family that is a permanent resident there and they can sponsor you to come. The other way is that you have a job offer. So that means that you have to apply for a job, be offered the position and have your employer be willing to pay your legal fees for work visas. And in that case, you can be sponsored on a particular type of work visa to enter the U.S. Those are the main ways to come in as someone who wants to work. Now, this is different, for example, here in Canada. Uh, I know the rules have changed a little bit or they're in the process of changing, so I'm not going to be very specific with it. But in Canada, for example, people for many years were ranked on a point system as who would be likely to be able to work. And you could come to Canada without a job and then start looking for work. I took that test once to see how many points I would get. And I, I think I think I remember that I would not have been able to get into Canada. No. Um, and even like, and there was a lot of points for being bilingual. <laughs> I got those points. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say, I wonder if I could make it into Canada, and that's the dumbest thought. <laughs> <laughs> so it's important to note that a lot of legal immigrants in the U.S., who especially the ones that come on work visas, are working. Immigrants in the U.S. tend to be working more because it's harder to get into the country. Whereas in Canada, there's a lot of legal immigrants that are not working because the systems are different. Work is not required to enter the country. A lot of the legal immigrants, uh, particularly those that are sponsored on work visas through employers, tend to be highly skilled and highly educated as well. So they're not just working at a low wage, uh, low skill requirement job. They're working in higher level positions. Yeah, Walmart is not going to pay your legal fees for you to immigrate here. Absolutely not. But you know, the, the tech startups in Silicon Valley probably will, or uh, Wall Street companies probably will, things like that. The tech startups want you on HB, whatever. Like H1B or something yeah, is people, the work visa. Yeah, they would totally prefer you do that because that way you can't quit your job because then you'll get deported. 
Mm. Yeah, uh, tech companies are not immune to exploitative work practices. And by not immune, I mean they practice them all the time. Yes, but that's not what this podcast is about, so both of you stop talking about it right now. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's all I was going to say. Okay. Now, the other group of immigrants, the ones that are the most contentious group, would be the undocumented immigrants. So this basically means that they don't have work visas, and they don't have, for the most part, real social security numbers and that. Now, some people enter without any documentation. Some people are also undocumented because they came with a visa, the visa expired, and they never left. And so that would be the case for the ones, for the people who tend to have more education and uh, higher skill sets. For the ones who are coming with low skill sets, those are typically the ones that just never had any documentation. Mm That being said, a lot of the uh, a lot of the undocumented immigrants, particularly recent arrivals, do tend to have low skill sets and low levels of education. And it's important to note too that there's a lot of state laws and federal laws as well, I should say, that prohibit them from holding higher level jobs. So even if they arrive with higher levels of education and and uh, specific skill sets, they aren't actually allowed to apply for certain jobs. So they they're not allowed to apply for certain jobs that are federal jobs. Um, they're denied health coverage in a lot of places, which can be an impact for some employers. They're not allowed to get driver's licenses in most states. So in a lot of jobs, you need a car to get either to get to work or because it's part of your job. So if you can't legally drive a car, you can't actually apply for the job. Mm -hmm. Um, They face higher scrutiny. Um, There's this thing called E-Verify that it's a, a system that checks social security numbers to make sure that the the name and person match up with the number uh, because old social security numbers are sold on the black market to undocumented workers so um that's some states have laws that every worker must go through that system and so if they know that they don't their number won't match up then they just Mm -hmm. don't bother applying to a lot of things like that so they've got a lot of things that stop them from holding any higher level jobs to begin with So that's a bit of a primer on the two main groups of immigrants here. When someone says immigrants steal jobs, it's important to really break those two things apart here because while they're both people that are not born in the U.S., they have different impacts Mm -hmm. on the economy and on the population as well. Some things that are common to all immigrants, though, is that many face uh, challenges with English proficiency. So people who have lower levels of English language skills tend to have lower level jobs because English is the main language of the U.S. An acceptance of their training or accreditation that's achieved outside of the U.S. is also a challenge, and this is a very common challenge in Canada as well. Uh, There's other challenges. They just don't know the country. They don't know the culture, the the ins and outs of society as well that could lead them to jobs that better match their skill sets and qualifications. So of course the U.S. born tend to have an easier time finding work than immigrants, whether they're documented or not. U.S. born workers also outnumber immigrants in every industry. There are some industries that have a high, uh, unusually high proportion of immigrants in those industries, but there's still more U.S.-born workers working in every industry than there are immigrants. Now, as for undocumented immigrants, uh, per a Pew Research Center paper from 2016, uh, there were about 11 million undocumented immigrants in the U.S. in 2014. So that's about 3.5% of the population. About a quarter of all immigrants are undocumented immigrants. And this is actually down from the highest level, about 12.2 million in 2007. The level's been about stable since 2009. So pretty much since the economic downturn of 2008, 
the undocumented immigrant level has stayed about the same. Uh, interestingly, the number of undocumented immigrants from Mexico, you know, the ones that are apparently streaming in constantly across the border, is actually declining. Undocumented immigrants from places like Central America and Africa is increasing. These immigrants represent about 5% of the working population or those looking for work. 66% of them have been in the U.S. for 10 years or more. So again, that shows that they're not just coming over constantly, constantly. Yes, there's a there's a back and forth flow, but more and more people have been making their roots in the U.S. for a long time. And of course, the employment clusters in low-wage, less desirable industries like agriculture, particularly farmhands, slaughterhouses, things like that, cooking and housekeeping. So as I mentioned, U.S.-born workers do outnumber immigrants in all industries. There's been some changes in the U.S.-born worker population as well throughout the last few years. So the, the number of U.S.-born workers overall is declining. The population is getting older and there are fewer U.S.-born workers in the workforce now than there has been in the past. Um, overall, U.S.-born unemployment rate has dropped. And Something that I want to note now and we'll come back to is that the number of U.S.-born workers without a high school diploma is also declining. And this becomes very, very important when we look at the effect of undocumented immigrants on the economy. So there have been several recent analyses that came out, many of them uh, during the primaries starting in 2015 all the way up to 2016 into the presidential race, looking at the effect on the economy. And they've found that Overall, there's a positive effect of having immigrants in the workforce. The economy does better when there are immigrants. And for the most part, most U.S.-born workers are not affected by having immigrants. Now, a lot of these studies, they didn't do detailed analyses of whether it was undocumented immigrants or uh, documented immigrants, but they did do some subgroup analysis there. So by and large, U.S.-born workers are not affected by having immigrants. So... That's not really looking like immigrants are stealing jobs, but let's look at it a little bit more. There are a few subgroups that are negatively affected. Prior immigrants, people who moved here years before may be replaced by people who are moving to the States more recently. They may lose jobs. U.S.-born teens are affected. Now, they can still get jobs. They're just getting fewer hours at those jobs because there's more competition for the same types of jobs. What types of jobs do teens tend to hold? low-wage, bottom-level jobs, right? There's now more competition, but they're still getting jobs. That's the thing that's important. The U.S. born without high school diplomas. In this group, they are seeing decreased wages with increased immigration. But again, remember that this group as a whole is decreasing as well because more U.S. born people are getting diplomas and are getting higher education. And that may not be entirely due to immigration. No. That's due to automation. That's due that's, to... I mean, yeah, there's a lot of reasons why somebody who is an adult who does not have a high school diploma is having a hard time having a job because a lot of jobs of that kind for anybody are disappearing. The last time where you could get a good factory job without a high school diploma and support your family for 40 years, those jobs are gone. Yeah. Yeah. Those, those jobs are long, long gone. Uh, another group that does seem to be affected is U.S.-born black men. They seem to be seeing decreased wages and decreased job opportunities. Now, this is from one particular study that I could find, and I want to put a big caveat in here. The study was showing that black men fare worse in employment 
and incarceration rates with rising immigration. But this study showed a, a correlation, not causation. Very, very, very important. Only correlation. So we need to remember that. And even the study authors note in the introduction of this study that the results should be interpreted with caution and that immigration alone does not fully account or explain the decline in black men's employment or increase their incarceration rates. So they said they still would have seen these changes if immigration is completely removed. We can't take immigration entirely out of it, but immigration is not the cause here. There is a lot of things that happen there. So we need to interpret that very carefully. And I'm really glad that I went back and found this study to read that because the articles that I found linking the study never mentioned that <laughs> fact. Of course not. No, they just said, oh, black men are suffering, which is a bad thing, but they never talked about what the study actually says. Mm -hmm. So there are a few groups that do tend to suffer when there's more immigrants in the workforce. However, as we've already pointed out, there's some other reasons going on there. The people that tend to suffer, these are those low-skill, low-wage jobs. But what about people who are highly skilled that are moving to the U.S.? Well, highly skilled immigrants tend to do quite well. They tend to have good wages. They also tend to increase the productivity and wages for other workers in their enterprise or in the industry as a whole. There's a few reasons for this. There's an increase in highly specialized skills. You're getting a higher skill set, and that helps everybody. So there's this increase in human capital is what they call it, and a real increase in collaboration that tends to happen. So an analysis by Kemeny and Cook from 2015 found that as diversity in workplaces and cities increases, so do the wages and economic growth of those same places. And their hypothesis is that it's because people are now approaching issues, problems, whatever they're doing, from more diverse angles, because you have more diverse cultures and backgrounds and ways of thinking about things. And this is increasing innovation, and that's helping everybody get better. Studies have shown that tech companies that have a more diverse array of backgrounds among their staff perform better as well. I think that really just comes back to that. They're finding that it's really much more complementary when you're taking, when you're bringing people together from different places and backgrounds. It's not a friction. It's really a collaboration and it's really complementing each other's skills and overcoming barriers that a group of more like-minded people would have been stuck at. So it's a really positive thing. Some analyses will say that immigrants appear to be gaining more jobs than Americans. But this also comes back to uh, the fact that the American-born workforce is shrinking. So what tends to be happening is that immigrants are coming in, not taking jobs, they are taking up jobs that are being left by other people for various reasons. They're people, filling holes. They're filling holes, basically, yeah. right? And we think about it, the American working population, like many countries, Canada's the same, many European countries are the same, it's aging. So people are retiring, people are leaving due to medical reasons, people are just dying. The, the population of people who are working is decreasing, but those jobs are still there. So there aren't as many young pe younger people to come in and take them. These are not new jobs that are being snatched up. These are jobs that are being filled. And some analyses have showed that immigrants, particularly undocumented immigrants, tend to gravitate towards different jobs than U.S. born. So if we're going to look at those low wage, low skill jobs, again, because that's the most contentious group, the U.S. born that fall into these categories tend to work more in customer service like cashiers. They tend to be truck drivers, um, janitors. They tend to gravitate towards the jobs where 
English language skills are more required, cultural knowledge and uh, personal interaction skills are more valued. So they tend to work in those types of jobs, whereas the undocumented workers tend to fill the jobs, again, that are less desirable or where language skills and such are not needed as much. So again, the cooking, housekeeping, maintenance and um, agricultural staff. They're not really competing for jobs. In a way, they're sort of complementing each other because the groups are not applying for each other's jobs, right? The one group is leaving a vacancy for the other group. Niche habitats. Yeah, and, and that's that's sort of what it is. They People will carve out a niche for themselves. Yes, there are jobs that are being worked by undocumented workers, but would those jobs be filled by U.S.-born workers? That's a question that... I don't know, right? Are these jobs completely developed for undocumented workers? Maybe some, maybe not all. We know that a lot of jobs are not being applied for by U.S.-born workers. And part of the reason that they're hiring undocumented workers is because they can't get anyone else to fill the jobs. Or because they know they can pay those people way, way less. And really, the whole problem here seems to be capitalism. That's what Get we those see shops a lot. in against capitalism early and often. No, I was just about to say it yes. if you weren't. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's a common thing. Well, undocumented immigrants are bad. They steal our jobs and they'll work for less. That's a problem with the employers being exploitative and nobody stopping them from paying these people less. The employers should have to pay them the same no matter where they come from. That's the problem. It doesn't matter who you are. You're the employer. You should have to pay them the same. That's the problem there. We can just shut down that argument. A lot of the problems that these workers face is that they can't go to any authority to say, yes. I'm being exploited mm -hmm. because they're going to be snatched up right away by immigration. Yeah, the, the exploitation is the companies hiring undocumented workers under terrible conditions, not undocumented workers stealing jobs from... Yeah. Hardworking Americans like us. Well, but that, and this comes back to it. U.S. born people are not applying for these jobs because they're going, those are terrible jobs. The only people who would take them were people that could be exploited. In places, for example, in Arizona, when they've passed a lot of anti illegal immigration laws, they did a lot of raids, a lot of undocumented workers suddenly left a whole bunch of workplaces, and then they saw, oh, all of a sudden these employers have these job offers with higher wages now because they knew that documented workers wouldn't take those jobs. It's also important to keep in mind other issues affecting U.S.-born unemployment. Privilege and social disadvantage, poverty, and um, the cycle of poverty that keeps people from getting better educations. The effect of incarceration, right? A lot of places have laws that if you're not, if you've been incarcerated, you're no longer eligible for work. Well, now what are you going to do? These are big problems that cause systemic unemployment. So just saying, oh, the immigrants are taking jobs is not fair at all when there's these other issues that are preventing people from having work if they want work. And this really is like a catch-22. Like, according to Republican talking points, if the immigrants are working, they're stealing our jobs. But if they're not working, then they're, like, stealing welfare. Well, it's been referred to as Schrodinger's immigrant, right? Lazy and collecting welfare and stealing jobs? Hmm, feels like a scapegoat to me. <laughs> So speaking of racism, <laughs> on September 17th, 1787, the first draft of the U.S. Constitution was written. A year later in 1788, it was ratified. 
Uh, contained within that constitution is the Natural Born Citizen Clause. Presidents must be a natural born citizen. Uh, constitutional scholars agree that this means that essentially everyone born in the U.S. is automatically a U.S. citizen. But, uh, there's a significant contingent that also argues that the Natural Born Citizen Clause just means American at the moment of birth, which would mean anyone who was the child of an American citizen would also be considered a natural born citizen. This has never been tested in the court, so your mileage may vary if you're trying to run for president. Well, and that came up with John McCain, right? Oh, that's like extra complex because he was born in a U.S. military base in Panama, and a U.S. military base would be U.S. soil. Also, very technically, I might be using the wrong word here because he might have been born on a U.S. military camp. (laughs) I don't know the intricacies of uh, how military locations throughout the world work. (laughs) I am not going to claim authority there. Just as a very quick aside, uh, at one point, uh, I believe it was in 2012, there was a challenge on the Natural Born Citizen Clause suggesting that the 14th Amendment would make it null and void because the 14th Amendment prevents discrimination and the Natural Born Citizen Clause is discriminating based on origin of birth. Uh, It did not succeed, and that's too bad, because I think that's an interesting legal case, but Mm -hmm. also because people needing to be born in the U.S. or have American parents is kind of crummy. Anyway, uh, so let's jump forward a bit. In January of 1893, the U.S. overthrew Queen, and I'm sorry for the mispronunciation here, Queen Lily Ukalani, the Queen uh, Queen of Hawaii, and then in 1899, Hawaii was annexed by the U.S., becoming a territory. Then, in 1954, Hawaii became a state. In August of 1961, Barack Obama was born in Honolulu, Hawaii. His father was Kenyan, and his mother was American. In 2008, conspiracy theorists floated several different racist and baseless conspiracies that Obama was ineligible to be president, either because he was actually born in Kenya, because he was born as a dual national of also having British citizenship, or because he gave up his citizenship as a child in Indonesia. Uh, All of that is baseless crap that's racist. These arguments nonetheless gained support within the GOP. Is this because the GOP was at that point already in the midst of a decades-long war on facts? Is that because the GOP has a large racist base? Who can say? Jumping forward again. Are we going to the future? Marty, you've got to come back with me. Where? Back to the future! We have to go back to the future because Biff is president. (laughs) Oh no! (laughs) I was waiting. I just want to say one thing. God bless America. In March of 2011, during an interview on Good Morning America, Donald Trump said that he was seriously considering running for president. And we all laughed. Oh, how we laughed. How absurd. How silly. What a buffoonish man who could never be president, said we. We all did, yeah. During that interview, he said that he was a little skeptical. Sorry, I'm doing air quotes that don't help any of you listeners. A little skeptical of Obama's citizenship. Uh, He did several other interviews around that time period in which he said that again, and then Continued to say that a lot on Twitter. Uh, In October of 2012, he offered to donate $5 million to the charity of Obama's Choice in return for the publication of Obama's college and passport applications before Halloween on 2012. Spooky. So, Donald Trump continued to be In September of 2016, he finally said that President Barack Obama was born in the United States. P. 
period. Uh, so it's worth noting that during the statement where he said this, he also blamed Hillary for starting it. Hillary Clinton. She's the one that started it. Hillary Clinton never said that Barack Obama was born outside the United States. And uh, he also said that the reason that he was going to stop talking about it was it was inconvenient for him. He never apologized in any way. Mm-hmm. Also, as a follow-up to that, several news organizations said that he apologized for it. I, I've skipped some specifics here, like him hiring an investigator to go to Hawaii, him saying that that investigator said that no one in Hawaii knew who Barack Obama was. No, <laughs> sorry, 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 as a kid, as a yeah, kid. Okay. <laughs> There was so much. He had lots of uh, experts saying that the documents that were released were false. Uh, He threatened to sue Bill Maher, who had made a joke about how Bill Maher wanted proof that Donald Trump wasn't a monkey. Uh, Point I'm trying to get across here is that Barack Obama is definitely American in probably two different ways that count for being president. Also, if it really was so obvious that Barack Obama wasn't president... That would have been an easy lawsuit, but this was just talking points that would get Trump uh, ingrained in right-wing politics and get the ET party more interested in what he had to say. So, of course, this was not Donald Trump's first foray into being a horrible racist. Uh, in 1989, a woman, uh, Trisha Mela, was jogging in Central Park when she was assaulted and raped, and she ended up in a coma for a while. It was a horrible, horrible thing that happened. Uh, so five youth, uh, four of whom were black and one who was Hispanic, were arrested and charged. Uh, they were found guilty. They were sentenced to five to 15 years each. Uh, four of them had confessed to committing other crimes in the park and being accessories to the rape and blamed someone else in the group for actually perpetrating it. There actually are like 11 people who are charged that day for committing mm-hmm. crimes in the park, but six of them don't relate to this specific yeah. section of the case. Uh, And so it's worth noting that within weeks of their confession, all four rescinded their confession saying that they had been coerced into it, that they hadn't been able to see lawyers, that they hadn't been able to see their parents. And they'd been, you know, talking to the police for 30 hours at that point. Yeah. Jumping forward a bit, in 2002, Matthias Reyes admitted to the crime, and this was backed up by DNA evidence. He wasn't convicted for it because apparently there's a statute of limitations on rape and assault in New York. Or there was, either way, that's terrible. Although he is in jail for life for serial rape and murder. He was in a jail with one of the now exonerated Central Park Five. Hmm. Okay, so, oh, did did you watch that documentary about this? I've watched a few documentaries about it. (laughs) Wow, I don't know why I took the segment then. <laughs> all right, so so after that came out, uh, all five's convictions were vacated, which legally means it's like they were never convicted at all. You just forget that there was a trial that happened. Sorry about those 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. The five sued New York City in 2003 for malicious prosecution, racial discrimination, and emotional distress. Uh, New York settled for $41 million, and... As of 2014, they were still pursuing case against New York State. So where does Trump fit into this? On May 1st in 1989, Trump ran full-page ads in four New York newspapers stating, Bring back the death penalty! Bring back our police! This cost roughly $85,000, and underneath those words in giant bold, it said, Criminals must be told that their civil liberties end when an attack on our safety begins. So even back then, he was a constitutional scholar. (laughs) He was interviewed about this on CNN, and he told Larry King, 
The problem with our society is the victim has absolutely no rights, and the criminal has unbelievable rights. And, you know, if you think about it, him now being the president in command of so much, he was right. He's talking about the rights of criminals, not the rights of the accused. Like, he's already presuming guilt when he's talking about uh, civil liberties here. Yeah, that's a very good thing to point out. So after the, uh, the convictions were vacated, there were protests in front of Trump Tower because it was reasonably believed that his very inflammatory ads biased people against the five. And then in 2014, after the five won the case against New York City, he said it was a disgrace and that settling doesn't mean innocence. And a quick aside on that, in 1973, Trump was sued under the Fair Housing Act for racial discrimination. <laughs> and when asked about it during one of the presidential debates, he said, we settled the suit with zero, with no admission of guilt. So it seems that settling means you're guilty if you're black, but it means you're innocent if you were accused of discriminating against black people. <laughs> and actually... I was going to say, as recently as October 2016, I think I might be missing a comment about this since then, but in October of last year, he w went on record saying they admitted they were guilty. Uh, the police doing the original investigation say they were guilty. The fact that the case was settled with so much evidence against them is outrageous, and the woman so badly injured will never be the same. Now he cares about women? He cares about women as convenient props yeah. for his rhetoric. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So I think that... Uh, these two incidents directly also tie in with Trump's repeated statements about violent crime that he has said about several cities in the U.S., including Chicago, where he suggested maybe we would need to send in federal troops. He said it about D.C. He said it about Atlanta. And by some weird coincidence, all the cities he keeps mentioning are majority non-white and in the case of Atlanta are majority black. Given Trump's history of racism, it's important that we consider the actual ramifications of him suggesting that there is significant amounts of violence that don't really exist, uh, because America has a history of using fake threats of violence and rape in order to punish black people. Uh, protection of white women was largely the excuse given for lynching. For instance, uh, Emmett Till is one of the most famous lynching cases. He was a 14-year-old black boy who was brutally murdered. He was beaten. He had an eye gouged out. He was shot in the head and then thrown in the river, weighed down by a fan from a cotton gin, which is certainly a metaphor there. I should mention, since I hadn't yet, uh, the lynching occurred in August of 1955. Uh, so Emmett Till had been falsely accused of wolf whistling at a white woman. So, Jem, I see how exasperatedly annoyed you are that the thing he was accused of was whistling at a woman and because, seriously, don't harass women on the street, yeah. but, like, impossibly out of proportion. It's also worth noting that uh, less than a month ago, a 2007 interview with Carolyn Bryant, uh, the woman in question, came out where she admitted that she made up all of the things she said about Emmett Till. Caroline Bryant's grandson is Philip Bryant who is the governor of Mississippi. And they were just trying to put it all behind them because it was too much stress on the family. He chose not to accept a Trump appointment in November. Uh, it's also worth noting that, like, while, while lynch mobs were always a thing being done by the masses, 
The U.S. has, as a government, also used the same sorts of excuses to punish and attack uh, black people. Uh, The FBI Counterintelligence Program, or COINTELPRO, was ostensibly created as an anti-communist program that was used to try to factionalize the far left to prevent communism taking hold in the U.S., so COINTELPRO is kind of like MKUltra, but whereas MKUltra is just absolutely wild and unbelievable, but also true, instead, COINTELPRO is just unbelievably horrible, but also true. Uh, so the ongoing surveillance that was going on on various uh, civil rights activists was rolled into COINTELPRO. Uh, COINTELPRO was the program that sent the letter to Martin Luther King Jr. urging him to kill himself because he was a disgrace to black people, I believe was the phrase. Yeah. I, I don't remember the exact wording. You can find this official government letter, now official government letter that was sent because that got declassified. Um This is the same program that tried to frame Angela Davis and tried to frame many members of the Black Panther Party, such as Asada Shakur, for robberies and murders. Uh, This is the program that assassinated Fred Hampton and Mark Clark, who were sort of the heads of the Illinois Black Panther Party. They raided the place that the two were staying, shot them, and then claimed that the two had attacked during the raid. So when a president is talking about large amounts of violence, especially large amounts of violence being perpetrated by groups that are largely black, this is often being used as a way to justify horrible actions that are going to take place. Right. It really, really is worth noting and keeping track of the fact that the Daily Stormer supports Trump, that David Duke supports Trump, that the Klan supports Trump, that all these white nationalist groups support Trump, and that right now Trump is saying these kinds of things. Vaccines save lives, preventing between 2 and 6 million deaths each year. Between 2000 and 2010, global measles mortality declined by 74%, and polio cases have decreased by more than 99% since 1988, both thanks to aggressive vaccination campaigns. Even the seasonal flu vaccine is a lifesaver, helping prevent the spread of influenza to vulnerable populations like infants, the elderly, and the immunocompromised, for whom influenza can be life-threatening. Despite what you may have heard, vaccines do not cause autism. The major study linking vaccines to autism was fraudulent and was retracted by its publisher, and its author was stripped of his license to practice medicine. Donald Trump believes, contrary to all available scientific evidence, that vaccines do cause autism. On the 23rd of August, 2012, Trump tweeted, Massive combined inoculations to small children is the cause for big increase in autism. That October, he followed up with, Autism rates through the roof. Why doesn't the Obama administration do something about doctor-inflicted autism? We lose nothing to try. That's right. He called on the Obama administration to do something about doctor-inflicted autism. Once again, there is absolutely no evidence that vaccines cause autism. Here, as elsewhere, Trump is demonstrating his willful disregard for facts and is using unfounded fear to undermine public confidence in science-based medicine, potentially driving people to alternative medical practitioners instead. This is another case of Trump spreading dangerous misinformation that will probably result in people dying. Whether he believes these conspiracy theories or is simply pandering to those who distrust science or the government isn't even particularly relevant. As Brendan mentioned earlier, it doesn't change the harm he's doing. On the 28th of March, 2014, Trump tweeted, Healthy young child goes to doctor, gets pumped with massive shot of many vaccines, doesn't feel good and changes. Autism. Many such cases. 
That tweet has 8,500 likes and nearly 11,000 retweets. This confusion between correlation and causation is well debunked. Kids get a lot of vaccinations, including around the developmental milestones that parents are likely to first notice the signs of autism. Lacking any obvious cause, it's understandable that parents would cast about for a reason. If you look, you can find all sorts of spurious correlations. There's a better correlation between the rise in autism rates and the rise in sales of organic foods than there is for the rise in vaccination, for what it's worth. Correlation doesn't mean anything on its own. And every study that's tried to find a causal link between autism and vaccination has failed. In 2015, the prominent anti-vaccine group SafeMinds funded a $250,000 study in an attempt to demonstrate that thimerosal, a vaccine additive that was once common in the childhood vaccine schedule, causes autism. Despite being funded by SafeMinds, again, an anti-vaccine group, the study could find no evidence that the thimerosal in vaccines has any link to autism or other autism-like changes in the brain. But they did manage to kill 79 macaques to do it. On the 4th of September 2014, Trump tweeted, I'm not against vaccinations for your children. I'm against them in one massive dose. Spread them out over a period of time and autism will drop. This is the too-many-too-soon argument that we see all the time from anti-vaccinationists, and it's nonsense. The vaccine schedule is designed to achieve maximum vaccine efficacy while minimizing the number of interactions a patient has with the healthcare system. Kids don't like needles. Many adults aren't too fond of them either. And vaccinating against multiple diseases at once means fewer needles and fewer visits to the clinic. Quoting from Manitoba Health, Studies show that children do not have a higher risk of side effects when they receive more than one vaccine at a time. In fact, a child's immune system, which fights and protects against infections, is capable of reacting to thousands of germs every day, even before birth. Giving more than one vaccine not only reduces the risk of children themselves getting sick, but can also help prevent family and community members from the diseases we immunize against. Lest you think his position has softened in the intervening years, during the primary debates, Trump repeated the falsehood that vaccines are linked to autism. Trump had been corrected by medical experts and members of the public multiple times when he made these false claims. Autism has become an epidemic. People that work for me just the other day, two years old, two and a half years old, a child, a beautiful child, went to have the vaccine and came back and a week later got a tremendous fever, got very, very sick, now is autistic. Remember the discredited researcher whose fraudulent work is responsible for the modern anti-vaccine movement? Andrew Wakefield? Trump met with him back in August. This nonsense wasn't just confined to the campaign. Last month, Trump met with strident anti-vaccine activist Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Kennedy reported that he was asked by Trump to chair a special committee on vaccine safety, citing autism as a specific concern. This committee has yet to appear, But Trump's not pivoting on policy, so we shouldn't expect him to pivot on science either. We have a lot more to cover in this episode, but if you're interested in the science of vaccination, we talked about it most recently on episode 101, when we reviewed the horrendous pseudo-documentary Trace Amounts. I'll give Alison Singer, the president of the Autism Science Foundation, the last word on this topic. The scientific research has been done, and the results are clear. Vaccines do not cause autism. Some people may choose not to believe the facts, but perpetuating a myth from the very highest levels poses a dangerous threat to public health. There is no evidence that there was any voter fraud that occurred 
in the 2016 U.S. general election. Despite this, there have been many and varied claims. Apparently, one in four voters believe President Donald Trump's unsupported claim that millions of votes were illegally cast in the 2016 election. Uh, Interestingly, more people believe that if there was voter fraud, that that voter fraud benefited Trump than benefited Hillary. Because why else could he have been elected? (laughs) But I find it interesting that even the people who believe his claims that three to five million people voted illegally think, well, yeah, but that probably helped him. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's what I'm saying, right? Yeah. Yeah, but also people really want to feel that, like, hey, Trump wasn't their fault. We couldn't have done anything. Someone else, Russia interfered. Yeah. Like, um, not not to say Russia had nothing to do with Trump's campaign whatsoever, but to suggest that Russia engineered Trump winning the election is just wish fulfillment, sort of. It's like we were talking about last month. We're saying it's much different if an accident happens versus I caused, like, the death of someone. Mm-hmm. And we don't want to fall prey to monocausationalism either. Uh, I mean, yeah. there are multiple contributing factors to, to everything. And um, misogyny. Uh, and people supporting a person who is obviously using coded racist language and not so coded racist language uh, were surely both massive contributors to Trump's victory. At his first meeting with bipartisan lawmakers, he declared that he believed that 3 million to 5 million people voted illegally in November. Uh, This is a widely debunked assertion, and he had all of his White House staffs uh, scrambling around to try and create an executive order that never appeared, although it was scheduled to be signed. Like, there was an actual scheduled thing where he was supposed to publicly sign this thing, and then they just cancelled it, and they haven't rescheduled it, so I don't know if, like, somebody talked some sense into him or what. (laughs) They couldn't find enough evidence, and people are just like, no, this one's just too far. Let's stick to the refugee thing. Sorry, Uh, what what was the executive order supposed to... Some sort of investigation into voter fraud. Executive orders are weird, but it was supposed to, like, be the thing that forced the launch of the investigation. Okay. Mm -hmm. Which is weird, because, like, normally wouldn't that just be like, oh, the Senate has decided to make a committee on it? Also, I think the Senate has decided to make a committee on looking into the Russia allegations. Anyway, uh, one of Trump's biggest, I guess, avenues of attack here is that uh, he used some sort of weird uh, discredited study to talk about how millions of people are registered to vote in more than one state, and that is bad (laughs) Uh, and will lead to voter fraud. Hilariously, it was later found out that the guy that he appointed to... His voter fraud expert. Yeah. Uh, Did a, like, Spicer Mm -hmm. is registered in multiple states, like it's... Rex Tiller? Rex Tillerson, yeah. Tillerson is... His daughter, Ivanka, is also registered in two states. It is completely reasonable that someone who travels a lot and has multiple homes would would have that. So it, it is not surprising that all these people doing political things mm-hmm. do have two residencies. Yeah, it's, it's not surprising at all that lots and lots and lots of people are registered in multiple states because you move and you register and the other one doesn't get stricken off the records. And that's fine as long as you don't try and use both yeah. addresses to, uh, to vote. So yeah, basically his... Uh, his expert on the whole issue was found that he was registered in three different states. Uh, this was Greg Allen Phillips. He was registered in Mississippi, 
He was registered in Texas and he was registered in Alabama, but they looked into it and they were like, yeah, he definitely only voted in one of those places. But the other polls affirmed that if he had showed up and updated his address with them, they would have let him vote. That's fine. That's how the system works. Uh, So yeah, again, zero evidence that anybody has been using these multiple addresses, multiple registrations to vote. Um, He is also upset that there are lots and lots of dead people who are still registered to vote. Again, happens all the time. There's no evidence that any of those dead people have been voting or anybody has been using the dead people's names to vote. Yeah, bureaucracy is ugly. It doesn't mean that it's illegal. Uh, A quote from an article that I read, Trump claimed people that have died 10 years ago are still voting, citing a report that found 1.8 million deceased people remain on voter registration. True patriots. Rolls. But the report did not find evidence of wrongdoing, and numerous studies have found that such voter fraud is non-existent. (laughs) You know, if only the GOP was more interested in purging dead people off of voter rolls and not live black people, then this wouldn't be a problem. (laughs) Yeah, so, like, the entire issue is Trump says that there was voter fraud, there wasn't, and if there was, most people believe that it would have benefited him (laughs) <laughs> yeah. So even before the election, when it looked like he was definitely going to lose, remember those beautiful days? Oh, uh, the Halcyon days. Yes. Happy, happy days. Uh, he was he was already going on and on about uh, voter fraud because that was sort of his way his back to legitimacy, right? That you know he definitely won the election, but you know, yeah, it was fraud. He had like that whole goon squad thing going, where he was recruiting people to watch the polls yeah. and you know intimidate people and. All of that horrible crap. Wow, I bet that has no very specific uh, American historical historical context. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, like, part of me wonders if he just had built up this voter fraud thing in his mind so much that even after the election, he couldn't let it go. No, well, the reason he can't let it go is because he feels slighted by the fact that he lost the popular vote. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't win the people's hearts. I won the game, but I didn't win it by enough. And now I need to go back and prove how I actually did win it by more oh, than you. Because God. I am that He's petty. so gross. I, I know I said do. it doesn't matter whether he means the things he says, but also I 100% believe he thinks that the reason he didn't get the popular vote was fraud. This Oops. goes to his, like, his narcissistic tendencies, yeah. right? To his need to believe in his mind that he is the best. So his own attorneys dismissed claims of voter fraud in a legal filing last year when he was responding to uh, Jill Stein of the Green Party. Party who is demanding a recount. Uh, so yeah, they, his own lawyers were like, no, there's zero evidence of this. Well, and, and Trump just displays this pattern of facts are unimportant, consistency is unimportant, the only thing that is important is what is convenient for his current talking point. Yes. Just plow ahead, forget that anything else was ever said, let somebody else pick up the pieces later. As an aside, while the voter fraud clearly didn't happen, were the Democrats... To have committed massive voter fraud with millions of extra voters, I 100% believe they would f*** it up and just just have them all vote in states that they were going to win anyway. Like, that's the one thing I like about the theory is I genuinely believe the Democrats would f*** up fraud that badly. Uh, so this probably goes without saying, but one of the things that we should really be paying attention to as Trump talks about massive voter fraud is that it is an easy way for Trump to justify continuing the proud GOP tradition of trying to disenfranchise voters. Yep. 
especially black voters and Hispanic voters who are less likely statistically to vote for him. That's true, yeah. One of the one of the best ways to enact huge voter suppression laws is to keep talking up how super fraudulent this election was. It works for welfare fraud. Mm-hmm. Oh, also, just holy f**k him for already being registered for 2020. It, it, it's always hard to work out what parts of Trump I hate most, and it's clearly like the massive long-term harm that he's causing. Trump is a teratoma of awfulness. Teratoma, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, well, but, you know, obviously he's registered for 2020, so he can already be accepting campaign bribes. I mean, donations. <laughs> oh, also, while we're talking about it, that campaign slogan that he's already floated? I haven't heard it. Keep America great! Oh, God! <laughs> Between 1951 and 2010, the Earth's surface warmed by an average of 0.65 degrees centigrade. That's 1.17 degrees Fahrenheit. As with evolution, multiple lines of evidence attest to the fact that the global temperature is rising at an unprecedented rate. The best evidence suggests that humans are responsible for most or all of this warming. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change reports 95% confidence that more than half of the observed warming since 1951 is a result of human activity, primarily through the release of hydrocarbons into the atmosphere, causing a greenhouse effect. The current warming trend will continue to accelerate as Arctic sea ice melts. Ice is reflective, and as ice disappears, the darker earth and ocean are revealed, decreasing the albedo of the planet. A lower albedo means that more of the sunlight previously reflected by ice is instead absorbed, causing further warming and further ice melt. This warming trend will have catastrophic effects on the natural world, causing numerous extinction events. Extreme weather events will become increasingly common. Rising sea levels will devastate coastal regions, destroying lives and livelihoods. Agricultural disruption is anticipated on a massive scale, and trade will be disrupted. Developing nations will be disproportionately affected, and inland regions will experience increasing numbers of climate refugees. It's difficult to ascertain what exactly Donald Trump believes about global warming. On the 6th of November 2012, Trump tweeted, The concept of global warming was created by and for the Chinese in order to make U.S. manufacturing non-competitive. That's right, before he was elected, the President of the United States asserted that 97% of working climate scientists have been taken in by a Chinese hoax. That tweet has more than 14,000 likes and nearly 25,000 retweets. In January of 2016, Trump backed off just a little. When confronted, he brushed off his China comment as a joke, but he has a long history of describing global warming as a hoax. On the 25th of January 2014, Trump tweeted, NBC News just called it the Great Freeze, coldest weather in years. Is our country still spending money on the global warming hoax? Four days later, he followed up with, Snowing in Texas and Louisiana, record-setting freezing temperatures throughout the country and beyond. Global warming is an expensive hoax. And then later that day, Give me clean, beautiful, and healthy air. Not the same old climate change, global warming. Bullshit. I'm tired of hearing this nonsense. That's about as sophisticated as Trump's scientific thinking seems to get. Global warming is fake because, I don't know, it snows sometimes. 
For thorough debunking of this and every other argument under the sun, I'll link to skeptical science in the show notes, but suffice it to say climate is not weather. A cold day in one place has nothing to do with long-term climate trends, which show consistent warming year over year. And unless a single sunny day would change your mind, this is also the worst kind of confirmation bias. In September of 2015, he told CNN point blank, I've won many environmental awards. I am not a believer in climate change. The evidence isn't on his side, but climate change denial isn't about evidence. As with the link between tobacco and cancer in the 50s and 60s, the goal is simply to muddy the water just enough to give plausible deniability. Motivated reasoning will do the rest, and companies can continue to turn a short-term profit at everyone's expense. We're dealing with merchants of doubt, whose only goal is to keep making a buck as long as they can. It is a pity you have used your verbal skills for mere hucksterism and the advancement of your own greed. Trump is quite upfront about his motivated reasoning, telling Fox and Friends in January 2016, Well, I think that climate change is just a very, very expensive form of tax. A lot of people are making a lot of money. I know much about climate change. I've received many environmental awards. And I often joke that this is done for the benefit of China. Obviously, I joke. But this is done for the benefit of China because China does not do anything to help climate change. They burn everything you can burn. They couldn't care less. They have very... You know, their standards are nothing, but in the meantime, they can undercut us on price, so it's very hard on our business. For those following the news, this is the same kind of thinking that leads lawmakers to scrap regulations preventing coal mining companies from dumping toxic debris into drinking water. Oh, yeah. Whatever he really believes, Trump's policies appear to be in lockstep with the Republican establishment and libertarian think tanks like the Cato Institute that allow their free market biases to blind them to scientific evidence. And, to quote one Donald J. Trump, I'm tired of hearing this nonsense. I had a great segue here tying the hacked ClimateGate emails into the Clinton email scandal, but it was too long, so it hit the cutting room floor. You'll have to use your imaginations. Lauren? Good job cutting that, Jim. Especially since I'm starting with Benghazi. (laughs) Ugh. Tonight has been really hard. Every time that name passes my ears or lips, I feel the urge to spit, like with any mention of Wollerton on Corner Gas. <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't have a spittoon handy, so... Yeah, I have... <laughs> and this is the one carpeted area of the house. Please don't. <laughs> I have done... I have reined it in really well tonight. And I did say in here that I make no promises for the condition of your rec room carpet after my segment. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm also not a fan of dysphemisms. So things like Cheeto Mussolini, or that disgusting pus bag shill installed by American neo-Nazis to further their positions. So I apologize in advance for any sarcastic twist to the sound of my voice when I have to say that name. And I swear it's completely involuntary. <laughs> Please just don't say Trump. No, never. I don't use dysphemisms. Never Trump. Why would I attack immigrants? So one of the major talking points on the campaign trail was the Benghazi attacks of 2012. So what actually happened in Benghazi? Does anybody know? Just give me a five-word... Some people died, Republicans got mad. Uh, And and embassy uh, was attacked. Yeah, embassy was attacked, two people died, I believe. There was actually a really good summary on Wikipedia, so I'm just going to give their first little summaries. So the 2012 Benghazi attack that September was coordinated against two United States government facilities in Benghazi, Libya, by members of the Islamic militant group Ansar al-Sharia. 
At 9.40 p.m., September 11, members of Ansar al-Sharia attacked the American diplomatic compound in Benghazi, resulting in the deaths of U.S. Ambassador to Libya J. Christopher Stevens and U.S. Foreign Service Information Management Officer Sean Smith. Stevens was the first U.S. ambassador killed in the line of duty since 1979. At around 4 a.m. on September 12, the group launched a mortar attack against a CIA annex approximately 1.6 kilometers away, killing CIA contractors Tyrone S. Woods and Glenn Dotry, and wounding 10 others. So why did these attacks cause such a major Republican talking point during the 2016 United States election? Because they just picked a thing and went with it? Basically. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, they, they have a they tenuous connection to Clinton job. because yeah. of uh, she was Secretary of State at the time, right? So. She knew it, it was going to happen. She let it happen, something like mm-hmm. that. In 2012, Hillary Clinton was the United States Secretary of State. In the aftermath of the attacks, the State Department was criticized for denying requests for extra security at the compound, and Clinton took responsibility for the security lapses. And so that was the right's giant talking point about how she got people killed. During the 2016 campaign, the American House Select Committee on Benghazi released dueling reports. Republicans on the committee made a report that blamed the generals and Clinton for basically not being psychic and sending help just in case. Democrats on the committee made a report that called out the committee Republicans for focusing on Clinton. These reports were 800 pages and 63 pages, respectively. (laughs) So according to Bloomberg, the Democratic report concluded in part that the Defense Department couldn't have done anything differently on the night of the attacks that would have saved the lives of the four Americans. The State Department's security measures in Benghazi were woefully inadequate as a result of decisions made by officials in the Bureau of Diplomatic Security, but Secretary Clinton never personally denied any requests for additional security in Benghazi. The intelligence community's assessments evolved after the attacks as more information became available, but they were not influenced by political considerations. Administration officials did not make intentionally misleading statements about the attacks, but instead relied on the information they were provided at the time under fast-moving circumstances. You say something, and then you correct it when you get better information, right? Right. Especially if you are responsible and accountable to a 24-hour news cycle. Yeah. Media Matters did a lot of my work for me on this segment. I'm really Mm. happy for them. They've created a comprehensive page with over 50 myths and facts about the Benghazi attacks. That's where I'm getting most of my information for this segment. And that link will obviously be in the show notes. Fascinating. Until, oh, yesterday, all I knew about Benghazi was that it was in Libya and it was the big hammer home point because I purposely didn't look up anything Trump said. (laughs) But Media Matters educated me and educate yourself with it. So some facts to clear up some outstanding bad intelligence. One, the State Department, including Hillary Clinton, had no advanced knowledge of the attacks. There was no singular tactical warning in the intelligence reports leading up to the events on September 11, 2012, predicting an attack on U.S. facilities in Benghazi on the 9-11 anniversary. Number two, there were multiple teams of armed guards at the compound. They had not, as reported by Rush Limbaugh, been removed ahead of time. Number three, American military assets were not ordered to stand down during the attack. Because telling the American military to stand down is basically treason. Why? Why? Like, how did that ever make any sense to anybody except just those conspiracy theorists who believe chemtrails, guys, chemtrails? Yeah. So security responded. People died anyway. 
that's what happens in an attack. Yes. That happens sometimes, even when you try your absolute best. Mm -hmm. It sucks, but it's true. And several troops were sent to the compound during the aftermath, despite what Fox News reported. And these were private security firms that were guarding the compound, right? Number four, Clinton and President Obama were not hiding during the attack. Their locations and actions are well documented. They were not avoiding the media. I kind of thought this segment was just going to be a review of the movie. No. Number five. There was no cover-up of the attacks by the Obama administration. News reports and information provided from the White House changed, as I said before. Any information during an ongoing situation changes. The White House also referred to it as a terror attack. They didn't not refer to it as a terror attack, as was reported. No acts of terror will ever shake the resolve of this great nation. They also didn't sugarcoat it or sweep it under a rug. This was big news. There were four Americans killed in the line of duty while working in Libya. Number six, Clinton didn't personally sign off on reducing security. There was a memo that called for reducing security, and all memos from the State Department are rubber-stamped with the Secretary of State's signature, no matter where the Secretary of State is in the world. Number seven, which is my final point, because you can go to Media Matters and read the whole thing. I was hoping you weren't going to do 43 more. (laughs) No. I don't have that kind of attention span for a gem-like segment. (laughs) Number seven, no cover-up or apology tour or information scrubbing occurred. People were saying that Obama went on an apology tour through the Middle East. This was a tragic attack that resulted in four deaths. Much can be said by people much more knowledgeable about it than I am, about why the U.S. is vulnerable to attacks such as these, and who put them in that position. And I'm not opening that can of worms tonight. I'm going to switch over to emails. Long story short, Hillary Clinton set up a personal email server in her home before she became Secretary of State, and in the efforts of being expedient and not carrying more than one BlackBerry with her, she decided to use it. She admitted that she screwed up. It was not the right thing to do. She never set up a .gov Secretary of State email address, and all of the emails that were of official information were most likely backed up by the people who were sending them to her. So, really, it became a non-issue. Now, like, I don't want to disparage Hillary Clinton, but... Oh, go ahead. I bet she doesn't know how to set up an email server herself, since, like, I maybe barely do, and that's ostensibly the field I'm in. (laughs) I'm I'm guessing that the IT department actually approved that and set it up. She didn't want to carry more than one device, and that's all it came down to. She made a bad judgment call several years ago, and it wasn't like it was unprecedented. Didn't several Republicans also, Uh, like, tell her to? Yeah, and Bush and Cheney never had government addresses. Uh, Sarah Palin did it. My understanding was that this was the same server that uh, the Clinton Foundation was using and Mm -hmm. that it had been set up for that purpose. That's why they had it in their home. Regardless of whether you believe any particular justification she gives for setting up the server is kind of beside the point, I think. Yeah. Like, whether she did it to hide anything or not, the available evidence doesn't suggest that there was... Malfeasance beyond this. No. And it became a talking point in the right-wing circles of news because they had to do some sort of false equivalency. They had to report something horrible about Hillary basically 24 hours a day. I guess they have to keep up with Trump, right? (laughs) Yeah. So this got blown out of proportion. And that, plus the Benghazi attacks, turned into the we hate Hillary's and the chance of lock her up. 
it seems like so many different organizations were complicit in this. Like, the the whole thing where they had to, like, trickle out the findings over a freaking year because they couldn't go through them all at once or some cockamamie excuse. Comey's announcement. Yeah, yeah nine days before, before the election. The other guys, yeah. yeah, emails, and we're like, we may have more information, but we don't know yet, but we thought we should announce that. Yeah. Uh, it was just such garbage. Meanwhile... Trump isn't using two-factor authentication for his personal Twitter account. <laughs> that he uses on his super out-of-date Android phone. Yes. And also, mm-hmm. Trump doesn't believe in using email. He doesn't have a computer in his office. And all of his top staff, like Bannon and Conway, they're still using RNC servers for their email. Has so anybody figured out what password Sean Spicer was tweeting the other Oh, so day? it wasn't his Twitter password. It was almost certainly... His two-factor authentication. His two-factor authentication because he's probably using Twitter by text. <laughs> what? <laughs> <Yes>. Still? Yes. <laughs> it's 2008? So anyway, it got blown under proportion. People who aren't of a tech age using a server and getting advice from people saying, this will be fine. And because, you know what? It was fine. Nothing actually happened. But the fact is, these are people of a tech age not appropriately using a server, but still doing a way better job at tech than the people complaining about them were do- are yeah. doing presently. Basically. To be as clear as absolutely possible, the FBI investigation into the email scandal is complete, and Hillary Clinton was cleared of any criminal wrongdoing. Yep. I got a little bit more on misogyny, because this kind of flows all together. Trump's a misogynist asshole. Brendan. (laughs) (laughs) I love how there actually was a segment in here for general misogyny. No, it was well documented all through the campaign, and apparently that didn't matter. And I'm not going to insert any drops here of Trump saying any of the horrible things he said. We've heard it. We've seen it. But Trump's a garbage human being. Wow, I'm like I'm so demoralized by the end of this. It's just so much, and like th- that's not everything, right? We haven't covered Trump's support for anti-LGBTQ uh, legislation. We've barely covered a smattering of the myths about black crime that he has endorsed. We didn't cover that bizarre Kennedy assassination conspiracy theory where he blamed Ted Cruz's dad for the assassination. Um, we didn't talk about his support for eugenics for a primer on eugenics, go back to episode 110. The fact that he said it was impossible to trace the origin of the uh, the DNC email hack, uh, when he said he was always against the Iraq war, when he clearly wasn't. Are you for invading Iraq? Yeah, I guess so. Uh, you know, I wish it was, I, I wish the first time it was done correctly. Did you oppose the war before the invasion in March of 2003? Yes. When we were planning this episode, what what did we go through, Brendan? You and I, between 63 messages going back and forth on what horrible things that we could talk oh, about? it was a big list. Ashlyn woke up and went, who is texting me all these things? <laughs> well, I would like to point out that Jem, right at the beginning of this episode, had said, it's been a few weeks since the Muslim ban. It has actually only been 16 days since the inauguration. Never even mind the ban was several days after that. It has not been a few weeks. It has been a week and a bit. <laughs> yeah. It, it just feels like a very long time. 
Yeah. One point I would like to make. This week, Trump had said that he would not take the rights away from LGBT, well, excuse me, LGB people that were given during the last administration. But speaking as somebody who is in the rainbow, there's a healthy population in the L's and G's. Specifically the white G's. Specifically the white G's. (laughs) The pink elephants. That once they are included, they turn into the most rabid excluders. God, though, pink elephants is good. That's good. (laughs) I stole that from The Simpsons. I don't know. You guys are also depressed. And I'm like, no, let's stay angry, guys. Come on. <laughs> angry is better than depressed. Depression leads to sitting in corners. Anger leads to doing something. Oh, I can, uh, I as Ashlyn points out, it's been 16 days since the inauguration. We can't f- run out of steam yet. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, and okay. I mean, we feel like this, and we have a lot of privilege. Yep. So, Ibrahim's been staying off of Facebook and Twitter, because, like, it's not a great time to not be a white person and be on the internet. What? And so, like, I've been... I told him I'd like, I'm like, oh, I'll keep you up to date on what's happening. I'll make a list for you every day of what's going on with the Trump. <laughs> so after the second one I sent, he's like, okay, buddy, you need to send like a ton of cute animal videos at the same time. Because <laughs> like, this is not happening. <laughs> All right. So I want to talk a bit about how just fact checking things isn't enough. The GOP knows that the Democrats refusing to hold hearings on Trump's Supreme Court justice pick, which, oh God, if if you're hearing this in the future and they didn't even do that, because there's now talk about them just letting Trump have this one so they can fight next time, because mm-hmm. Jesus oh, Christ. What? You fight every time. Fight! They did nothing for eight years. Mm. But if the Republicans have one skill that the rest of us can learn, it is staunchly doing f- all and including not doing their jobs and why the fuck can't the democrats do the same thing so we've spent some time doing some light fact checking on trump it's it's astoundingly easy to do fact checking on him because he says so much that's so obviously wrong but just fact checking isn't enough Because here's the thing, the GOP knows when they say that it would be unprecedented for the Democrats to boycott having a hearing for for Trump's Supreme Court justice pick, that they did that over the last year. They know that they spent a good portion of the last decade just obstructing everything. This isn't just some, like, weird misunderstanding. This isn't some weird gotcha where if we can just prove that Trump said something that contradicted something else he said before, then everything would just get better. The GOP just says what they need to consolidate power. This isn't a particularly new thing. The resurgence of the Confederate flag and the renewed push for states' rights is a direct response to the civil rights movement. Just like the Confederacy, the GOP doesn't care about states' rights because states' rights are good. They care about states' rights because they can control state legislatures and do what they want to do. In that case, it was fighting against desegregation, and now it's gerrymandering states so that they maintain control of the House no matter what, even as American demographics shift away from the GOP. If you look now, they're in power federally, and Kel Surprise, they don't have a minimalist government supporting states' rights. It's because this is about power. They're doing what they can to keep in power. Trump may be more egregious than previous presidents, but it's only because over the last few decades, we've slowly been making room for him by accepting the things before that. 
So when the Trump administration lies, it's to keep their side on message. It provides the thinnest veneer of possibility that they can use to hammer against anyone who complains. To give another example, it's sort of how it was immediately self-evident that Gamergate was not about ethics and game journalism. No one who looked at it for more than a second would have thought that. But they kept with the message because, one, people felt they had to waste time refuting that fact, even mm-hmm. though it was self-evidently wrong. But also, it allowed them to cast doubt on the media to help prevent the media from criticizing them. And, hey, what do you know? That seems to be the exact same sort of thing that the GOP has been doing over the last few decades. Because there are people who genuinely believe some of the things that Trump is saying, some of the things that the GOP says in general. But fact-checking in the media isn't going to convince them because there has been a war on facts and the media for a long time now. I I don't have an exact history of when this started, but it, it goes back at least as far as when Rupert Murdoch started consolidating right-wing populist newspapers in the 1960s, that uh, right-wing talk radio has been full of conspiracies for decades, that ever since Roger Ailes became the head of the newly created Fox News, that the largest news station in the U.S. has been built around the idea that the rest of the media is lying. And since Trump has become more actively involved, obviously he's had his own specific war on the news, and it's well-known and it's troubling. You are fake news. I would suggest that it goes all the way back to, well, probably before this, but William Randolph Hearst and his uh, support of the war that only happened in the media until it happened in real life. It also would be worth noting that, like, this this isn't, it has never been a right-wing only thing. Like, there, there was the same sort of sentiment on the left during the Vietnam War that the media was lying about what was really going on. And depending, you like, may I mean, actually some, some of which was borne out uh, by like the Pentagon Papers. Yeah, yeah. So, so that. But but the thing is that like that's that's true now because often when we see what we see in news reporting done today is we see we see this argument that everything needs to be both sides. We see this veneer of faux objectivity. We see fact checking that often isn't. So to, to give a specific example, on January 14th, 2017, uh, the Washington Post fact-checkers gave Bernie Sanders four Pinocchios out of four for saying that gutting the Affordable Care Act would kill 36,000 Americans annually. They said this because there was no reason to believe that the GOP wouldn't put a new plan in place as they replaced the old plan. And so for Bernie Sanders to say that these people would die was just... The biggest of lies. Wow. Yes. And it's worth noting that on January 23rd, the same Washington Post ran an op-ed suggesting that the gutting of the Affordable Care Act would kill 43,000 people annually. When the news feels the need to play both sides and make specious arguments or contradict itself, it's not especially surprising that people don't end up trusting what the news says. Like, if you look at numbers in general, people don't really trust the mainstream media to a non-insignificant amount. I don't trust a lot of reporting in the mainstream media. And that distrust is to some degree healthy, yeah. They're building distrust. It's also just an exercise in distraction, right? They don't care. And knowing that now there's an expectation from the opponents to go and fact check, they throw in as many distractions as they possibly can 
in order to send people out going to do that, and then they just keep talking in the meantime. It's the New Day's breads and circuses. Like, that said, it is important not to play the game of, oh, they're just doing this horrible thing I don't care about to distract from this other horrible thing that I do care about. A lot of what's happening really does matter. It really affects people. Sure. It's not just to wag the dog. No, and I'm not saying that. No, 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 sorry. Saying, like, the barrage of it and the, the brazen disregard for obviously untrue statements is an exercise in distraction in a way. I've also read a, an interesting analysis, too, that the way that fact-checking is done, sort of like that, um, was it Washington Post? It, that was Washington said? Post, Their, yeah. their fact-checker, you know, it's not done in a careful and thoughtful manner that's actually helping people. So they'll do things that say, like, oh, ex-representative said this happened in 2012. It was actually 2011. That part doesn't matter. But that's what they're doing for fact-checking because there's an expectation for fact-checking. And because it's easy. And it's, it's easy. easy. It's quick. It's check. easy. And that leads people to say, why is this relevant? Because it's not. And people engaging in the media can see that that's not relevant and that is going to decrease the trust yeah. in the sources that are supposed to be critiquing and staying on top of these things. They need to be fact-checking the important parts of things. Nobody cares that this happened in 2011 versus 2012 unless there's like some, unless that's a major part of the thing. Post-apocalypse history teachers will. <laughs> sure. Yeah. But there's been a focus on less important things. Yeah. Well, and like at the same time, you have this, uh, the Wall Street Journal recently said that they're not going to call anything Trump says a lie because they can't magically work out the intent of his statements. Right. Yeah. They, they can't call anything a lie unless they're f***ing betazoids. Which is to say, I genuinely think that in some ways a lot of the right is correct when they say that the media is post-truth. There was a recent study that came out demonstrating that while people do get their news from Facebook, most people claim to not trust uh, the news that they get from social media. So whether they uh, I internalize it more than they think they do, that's it's probably true. But uh, they don't. Well, it's just, like ads. Uh, yeah, they, they don't just distrust the mainstream media. They also distrust alternative media as well. Apparently, you can trust us. No, don't, I mean don't trust, don't trust us. us. Do, do your own homework. Uh, I mean that's like, why we, we include show notes, guys. Yeah. That said, obviously, it is impossible to do your own work on just, like, all of this. You have you have to do yeah. some things. I, absolutely, but take everything with a grain of salt. Uh, related to that, I think that one of the even more dangerous things that's happening with the media and sort of with, with anti-Republican resistance is often we choose to cede the moral argument uh, just so we can have a discussion about objective facts instead. For instance, Fox recently ran an article about the Trump Muslim ban in which they claimed that the ban was bad because it wasn't tar it wasn't targeting the right countries, so it wasn't even a good ban. And that completely misses the fact that even if it was targeting countries where terrorists were coming from, the ban would still be immoral. It is still wrong to prevent refugees from escaping war. It's wrong to not allow someone into the country who has a visa. Absolutely. And one of the other problems with that specifically is when you say, oh, the big problem with this is it's not even banning the right countries, is that's just providing room for Trump to then expand it. Not only are we not fighting the argument that matters, we're actually helping make things worse. Uh, you see the same sort of thing when it came out that uh, Trump wants to put torture back on the table. Not that the U.S. really stopped torturing people, but... Yeah. Um, Officially. A lot of people say, well, torture doesn't work. And that's that's an, a complete, that argument doesn't matter exactly. because... Whether it works or not, it is still immoral. 
Yeah, sort of in the same vein. Uh, the the other argument we see a lot is, well, if people aren't arguing on that front, they'll ar- they'll make economic arguments like, oh, the Muslim ban is is bad because it's it's costing us this money in trade. Or the worst one is the Muslim ban is bad because this person, let's say Steve Jobs, was a Syrian refugee, and if we don't allow him in, then maybe we wouldn't have gotten a Steve Jobs. We should care because these are people that need help. Even if you don't want to make a moral argument, in that sense, there still is the moral argument that the U.S. has specifically destabilized the regions that they're now refusing to take people in from. They they have caused problems and don't want to do anything to help. I, th- I think perhaps this comes from tactics, right? I think people ignore the moral dimension of the argument because they think they're talking to people who don't care about the morality or who don't share their values. And so they're trying to argue on their own terms. Frequently when they're talking to libertarians, they're, they're talking to people who only care about free market arguments for some reason. So the fact that Steve Jobs, you know, was good for the economy and was a refugee or the, the child of refugees is suddenly relevant in that case. Yeah, and, and there, are, there are definitely times to make that argument. I don't want to... I'm not saying it is wrong in general to fact check. Also, the thing I I meant to say right at the top of this was uh, the next little thing I want to talk about is what we should be doing. And for me, this stuff is aspirational. It's still stuff I'm working out. I don't want to claim that I don't fall for some of the same pitfalls that I'm criticizing. Uh, I'm not saying that everyone should be good like me. I'm saying that we should all work to be better. Uh, And since this is a skepticism podcast, I want to talk specifically about uh, the skeptic community for a little while here. So we're recording shortly after the mosque shooting in Quebec, and I saw people were very quick to point out that on Facebook, the shooter liked Donald Trump, uh, liked Le Pen. It's also worth noting that the shooter liked Richard Dawkins. It's worth noting that Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and Bill Maher have done so much for making Islamophobia acceptable on the left or the center-right, really. They've been making Islamophobia popular for people who aren't far-right and who aren't Christian. And, like... You even see some of the same things where uh, Bruce Schneier and Sam Harris had the debate on racial profiling, and I think it's a good example of how these tactics often don't work, where Bruce Schneier decided that Sam Harris would try and have an actual debate, and he spent his time trying to talk about how it was ineffective, and Sam Harris refused to acknowledge that that might be true, and so what what you end up with is some people who are listening to it weren't convinced by Bruce Schneier's accurate descriptions about how security works, and they didn't even get to hear any arguments about how how it doesn't matter whether or not racial profiling works. It matters that it's immoral. Chris Stedman of the Yale Humanists tweeted after the shooting that uh, sources were reporting that the shooter was a fan of Richard Dawkins. And if that's the case, Stedman, as an atheist, publicly denounced that shooting and the Islamophobia that is prevalent in the atheist community. And he followed up saying, sure, it's inappropriate to demand that we account for the actions of other atheists as atheists, but it is equally inappropriate for us to demand that Muslims, as Muslims, condemn the actions of other Muslims. Especially in like these specific cases where it is very, very high profile, very prominent, very... Maybe less so the skeptics that listen to this specific podcast. I don't know, but but like these are people that are 
the big known names. Yeah. And if you're not going to denounce them, when uh, recognize their involvement. Uh, yeah. So I have one last thing I want to do. Uh, I want to talk about about what I think we should do. Um, so I think it's important that we be honest and we be sincere. So I think it's important that we don't propagate Trump's lies, and that also means if you're talking about something that happened, don't lead with "here's the thing Trump said," because that will give people the wrong impression that it may be a legitimate statement. Instead, as we've done in this podcast, lead with the facts. Lead with what is true. Also, don't argue in bad faith. Like, I may believe that what's happening with the right right now is fascistic. But uh, I, I was seeing some arguments where anti-Trump graffiti had been drawn and it called him, it said Nazis. And Fox said, oh, this is anti-Trump graffiti. And I saw a lot of people arguing, oh, they're admitting they're fascists. We don't need them to admit they're fascists. And that's clearly not what they're saying. Everyone can see from the context that that was written to Trump. It doesn't matter whether they think he really is a fascist. There are demonstrations against Trump and against prominent Trump supporters that are being disrupted by Antifa, by anti-fascist activists. And I have seen many people tweet that the fact that Trump supporters admit that they are being opposed by anti-fascists means that those Trump supporters admit that they are fascists. No, all those Trump supporters are doing is admitting that the people who oppose them call themselves Antifa. Uh, and especially since, like, the left and liberals have been quick to use fascists to complain about things on the right in the same way that, like, social justice warrior isn't them conceding ceding that what people on the left are doing is social justice. They're making fun of us because they think we're being hypocrites. I think it's also important when we're being honest to not whitewash history. The response to make America great isn't isn't America's already great? America is already great. It's that America was never great. Obama can simultaneously be way better than Trump and be someone who protected torture and who strengthened the state's ability to justify murders. It's also important that we don't pretend that we're objective because we can't be fully objective. Yes. Our listeners should know by now that this podcast does not pretend to be objective. No. If you've made it this far. <laughs> I think it's also important that we avoid sarcasm and irony to as much as we can. I love sarcasm and irony. Those are the only tools in my toolbox. But first of all, irony is often a luxury of those who can be detached on a lot of these issues. And if you're if you're trying to organize around irony, you're you may scare off people who are more directly affected by things that are going yes. on. Maybe even more importantly. Ironic statements are very easy to be taken out of context and used against you. Yep. Also, like, hipster racism isn't materially different than racism, and hipster racism and just being ironic are things that are used by the right to justify bringing racism, to bring sexism, all these things into the popular discourse. Yeah. That's how I, the alt-right got started. Yeah, you can it's, see that evolution on message boards, right? Yeah. yeah. Reddit is the home of the alt-right. <laughs> Although, the alt-right subreddit was uh, recently banned. I mean... I can't even bother congratulating Reddit for that, though, because it's long overdue. And look at all of the subreddits that are still and, on there. I mean, like... And 4chan, 8chan, it's all... Yeah. Um, but, yeah, like, you do you do see this march from I'm making a lol funny joke on the internet to now I can be serious about this because other people that's, are taking me seriously. That's how you radicalize an entire generation of young white men right now is you use the internet. You make Peppy the Frog memes. I, this is something that 
that liberals and the left have been really bad at. We need to stop pretending that Trump's only supporters are rural poor white people, because as a group, white people voted for Trump. That's not not talking about any like breakdown on where you are in the country. White people and white men especially voted for Trump. And Trump's voters were slightly, first of all, slightly wealthier than Clinton's voters. Yeah. But second of all, both groups are a bunch uh, richer than the average Americans. Poor people are heavily disenfranchised in America, and they aren't the people who overwhelmingly voted Trump into power. Other things we need to do is we need to unite. We can't, like, it was very nice to see scientists immediately talking about trying to muzzle climate change stuff, but scientists can't just talk about the issues that affect them. And also, scientists are affected by issues that aren't directly scientists. There are Muslim scientists, there are undocumented scientists, there are gay scientists, there are trans scientists. And even if these issues aren't directly affecting you, you need to unite with other people so that so that we can fight all of these things, because a lot of these things aren't going to have the popular support unless you're looking out for people who aren't you. And relatedly, we need to recognize power structures. That right now, in the U.S., in Canada, attacking Islam is not the same as attacking Christianity. There are material differences, and it's not all right to say we do the same thing with both groups. That is correct. That is the family guy slash South Park defense, and it is yeah. bullshit. 100% of the U.S. presidents, to date, have been at least nominally Christian, or raised in a Christian sort of a, of a, of a family. It's a false equivalency to say that attacking Christianity is the same as attacking it, it's Islam. The, it, well, it's also the same sort of like Mad Libs thing you see where like, oh, they're saying this about Nazis, but if they said that about Jews, that would be completely different. Yes, because it's completely different. Yeah. Oh. So I don't know if I have seen that specific example. <laughs> yeah. I just panicked and picked two extremes. <laughs> <laughs> and it's important that where we have privileges, we defend those without them. Like, I could record a police interaction or help to de-escalate a police interaction that an indigenous person, a black person, might not be able to. It's important to recognize that when police weren't arresting tons of people at the Women's March, but they do at Black Lives Matter protests or uh, No Dakota Access Pipeline protests, it's not because the Women's March is just, like, noble and good. It's because they're viewed differently based on what they perceive as a threat to society. It's also important to be supporting local initiatives. For instance, let's say you live in Winnipeg, like the people who are on this podcast. There's a movement, I uh, think it may be being spearheaded by known as illegal uh, Winnipeg Treaty 1 territory that is pushing to make Winnipeg a sanctuary city. Right at the top of this podcast, you heard some chanting from one of those rallies. This is a local thing that we could fight that would make things materially better. It will it will help people elsewhere involved. And as you get more engaged with local issues, it's easier to fight some of the bigger things nationally and internationally. Are you saying R grassroots politics works, Brendan? Yeah, I'm, uh, well, later I'm going to talk about how direct action works. Uh, it's, it's also important to recognize indirect violence as well. Uh, one of the things that people don't seem to be understanding at, let's say, the Women's March is that cops aren't your friends. They exist to maintain social order by force. And, like, if you look at, let's say, San Francisco, which is a sanctuary city, their treatment of homeless people is not in line with that idea that everyone is welcome. See, Black Hawk, someone else agrees with me. We need to recognize that things like repealing the Affordable Care Act will kill people. It will kill a lot of people. Gutting environmental regulations will kill people. Washroom bans aren't about bathrooms. They're about barring trans people from public life. It is almost the exact same argument being used there as was used to justify lynchings. It's protecting white cis women. 
it's important to recognize history that criticisms of Black Lives Matter mirror criticisms of the civil rights movement in the day, that the victories of the civil rights movement weren't won by out-arguing racism, that activists agitated, they fought, and some died for it. It's important to recognize that Pride commemorates the Stonewall riots. It's important to remember that we have the eight-hour workday off the back of the Haymarket Massacre. And it's important that we give white supremacy and fascism no quarter. A statement that a race is inferior or that trans people don't exist isn't an opinion. It's a threat. Fascism exploits liberal tolerance to provide space for violence and suppression. So I'm not saying you have to join a black bloc. I'm not saying you have to punch a Nazi. So Pepe's become kind of a symbol. I'm not saying that on tape. (laughs) And certainly violence is not the answer to every problem. But we have to recognize that fighting fascism isn't fascism. Punching a Nazi isn't the same thing as advocating genocide. Smashing a window or burning a cop car to prevent organized harassment is a defense of civil liberties. It's not an affront to it. And I mean, seriously, Spencer is literally a Nazi. Milo literally was there to get students deported. And at the previous school event he was at, one of his supporters shot an Antifa street medic. We're not even dealing with the hard problems. We can't fight over things like this. Sorry, I realized that was a very long thing. No, no, that's that's great. Really I, yeah. uh, I, one of the reasons I love having you on the podcast, Brendan, is it's like going to church, man. And I don't like church, but I mean that in the best way possible. Not next episode, but soon, we're planning to revisit some topics that we've touched on in the past. So if there's something that we only talked about briefly that you'd like more info about or somewhere you think we've made a mistake, like spending three hours talking about the president, um, send us an email and let us know. Uh, maybe we'll talk about it on the show. Podcast at winnipegskeptics.com. So what are we talking about next month, Ashlyn? Next month, we're going to be talking about all of our various senses, and we're going to be experimenting on ourselves. Ooh, all exactly five of them? <laughs> <laughs> I did not say that. Jem uh, has something in the fridge. <laughs> <laughs> He's told us that he has something in the fridge, that we need to do this topic before it expires. Yes. And I have a bunch of pieces of paper that we're going to lick. Whoa, whoa, whoa. If you're doing your LSD episode. <laughs> Former host uh, Mark Forkheim is going to be joining us, which should be fun. Look at that. It only took us like... Yeah, the, the raw recording is uh, well over three hours at this point. Let's go sleep. Thanks for joining me, everybody. Stop sounding so tired, Jim. Bye! Night, everyone. Thanks for joining us, Brendan. My pleasure. (laughs) Thanks for the sermon. You've been listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. If you have any questions or comments, or you'd like to suggest a topic for the show, send us an email at podcast at winnipegskeptics.com. If you want to show your support, give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter or Facebook, or just share the show with a friend. Our music is produced by the very talented Ian James. And this episode was edited by Jem Newman. I did real research for this, you guys. Real research. Nice. That's a lot better than me just going, what if I posted to Twitter over the last few weeks? Yes. <laughs> how do I, how do I condense, that, uh, condense that into a single brand? I'm trying to think of how to start the segment off with a true fact. <laughs>
Oh my god, I can't believe I didn't write a segment on how dogs don't get fired usually. <laughs> anyway. What? Trump has this thing where he like continually refer to people being fired like dogs, which is, which is not, <laughs> not actually a thing. <laughs> what? Okay, so for example, uh, on December 16th, 2015, Glenn Beck got fired like a dog by Fox blah, 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 or uh, February 23rd, 2016, blah, 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 Ted Cruz, he used him as a scapegoat, fired like a dog, Ted panicked, or Eric Erickson got fired like a dog from Red State, or David Gregory got thrown off TV by NBC, fired like a dog. On Twitter, he has tweeted fired like a dog seven times, which is so many more times than zero. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be such a long episode. I'm going to try and interrupt less. <laughs> Thank you. As with most of Trump's talking points, things are presented like very black and white issues that they are very obviously... Just when I tried to get... Aww. All right, so tell us all about the white working class and how only they are hurting. All right, I'm going to let you get more through more than five words. Like, I haven't actually said my first sentence yet, you guys. <laughs> okay, is jobs not a sentence? It's like an exclamation. <laughs> Is it jobs? <laughs> it's like a musical. <laughs> jobs! <laughs> Lauren, can I have another soda when you come back? <laughs> if you come back? Whoa, I just remembered that I have to find a way to slip in the point that during a wrestling storyline where Vince McMahon got yes. injured, <laughs> Trump called to see whether Vince McMahon was alright. This is Donald Trump, who is in the Wrestling Hall of Fame, who no doubt understands that it's fake. In 2008, a year that no one's ever talked about before because it doesn't exist. <laughs> oh, don't worry, I'm talking about Bill Maher later. Oh, good. Yeah. How many cause... segments are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing three. Or two. The... God, we still have two, two of my segments to get through. Oh, you're as miserable as I am, no, too. I hear you didn't freeze your dick off today. Why are you jogging pantsless? <laughs> okay. I feel like this is far too much of a digression. All right, speaking of dicks, Donald Trump. That's a good headline. Trump's father, a lifetime of racist practices. <laughs> the, the, the paragraph that's underneath it. <laughs> All right, that's a pretty good line. Donald Trump has often said he made his money the old-fashioned way. And this is true, in that he prospered from racism. <laughs> <laughs> All right, who wants to talk briefly about something that isn't specifically racism? Is that possible when we're talking about Trump? Oh, I assume we've got some sections on on sexism. Not, not that Trump's horribleness isn't intersectional, but... <laughs> <laughs> and it is bullshit. <laughs> I'm just if we're going to use the whole motto. Yeah. <laughs> Citing a report that found 1.8 million deceased people remain on voter registration. True patriots. Rolls. <laughs> 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 Boo patriots. Oh. Also, apparently the Patriots just won the Super Bowl. Yeah. Isn't that what you were referencing, Yeah. <laughs> uh, no. No, I Are you kidding? So. That's what I thought <laughs> you were referencing. That's why I was like, oh, God, Jeff. Why did because you... they're still voting and that they're dead. They're ghost Patriots. Yeah. They're boo Patriots. Yeah. Yeah, we are recording on Super Bowl Patriots. Day because that's how much yeah. we love sports. <laughs> yeah. Jim is unusually topical today. No, I was making a joke about ghosts. But I... But I... <laughs> I, I I know what Patrick Klepek's going to be complaining about tomorrow. <laughs> to his need to believe in his mind that he is the best. And you can't be the best if you lost part of the race, right? It doesn't matter if you won the medal. If you lost part of it, you're still not the best. 
Um, that's my that's my opinion on Trump in general. That's not how races work. <laughs> a lower albedo means that more of the sunlight previously reflected by ice is instead absorbed, causing further warming and further ice melt. Albedo causes me to warm also. Developing nations will be disproportionately affected, and inland regions will experience increasing numbers of climate refugees. So what you're saying is, because of the libido, things are going to get hot? <laughs> is it albedo? I knew what albedo was. He <laughs> was good job on just powering through that first one, though. You did good, job. This isn't some weird gotcha where we can say, but you did this, and then suddenly they have to give us all their gold or something, because they also probably have gold, because a bunch of them are libertarians who don't believe in fiat currencies. Except, except Bitcoin. A lot of them like Bitcoin now. I was, I was given a witch's curse, and unless I appear on this podcast at least three times a year, I'll die. <laughs> They'll make economic arguments like, oh, well, Steve Jobs was a refugee, and that argument is terrible because why does it matter whether whether or not the people who are trying to escape are going to be the most important Americans? It matters because they are people who need help. Well, did you say Steve Jobs? Yes. Yeah, I mispronounced that name, by the way. Okay. <laughs> Our listeners should know by now that this podcast does not pretend to be objective. No. If you've made it this far... <laughs> How many F-bombs do we have to drop before you realize what side we're on? <laughs> How many times do we have to say fuck capitalism? <laughs> fuck capitalism. Well, yeah, obviously fuck capitalism. I think that goes without saying. <laughs> These other issues do affect them. Scientists are Muslims. Some scientists may be undocumented. Scientists may be gay. Scientists... Well, scientists are gay. No. <laughs> Blanket statement. Okay. I'm going to re- redo that. All- I'm like, there are definitely gay scientists. I can't say scientists may be gay. Science is gay. All of the scientists on this panel are gay. Yeah. Richard B. Rich- Spencer. Yeah. All I know is every time I try and look you up his Twitter, Richard Spencer no. does not have at Richard Spencer. And I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry for you, person who's probably not a Nazi. Yeah. Who, is cer- who is certainly less openly a Nazi. <laughs> yeah. Have I been pronouncing Antifa wrong this whole time? No gods, no masters, no definitive pronunciations. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>